Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Sarah Tesorieri. Sarah is the Migration Policy Lead at Oxfam International. Sarah, we're here to talk obviously about the migration crisis facing Europe. Um, it seems to have uh, come along almost uh, all of a sudden as far as our leaders' reaction is concerned, but in your, in your view, how, how long has this crisis actually been percolating? Well, currently we have obviously a scale of people arriving um, that constitutes a, a crisis from Europe's perspective. Um, and those, those numbers are certainly higher uh, than in the recent past. But the people trying to arrive in Europe is not a novelty, and a regular migration to Europe is not a novelty. And we've seen peaks like this in the past, particularly in the mid-90s, um, but also about 10 years ago or so. And uh, we've seen um, this same inadequate response for, for, for many years. So what we have right now is a situation where the current numbers are exposing cracks in the system that have been there for a long time. They're just a lot more obvious right now uh, as a matter of scale. And so it's the size of the, the crisis now that's made, made the tipping point. You know, the phenomenon is not new, but it's just the sheer size, the scale. That's that's right. That's what I'd say. Uh, also, the 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 fact of people coming um, via Turkey, that's a new route, let's say, a relatively new route. We've never seen this scale along that route. But we've certainly had peaks like this in the past on the route between Libya and Italy. And that's something Italy uh, has uh, dealt with before um, in decades past repeatedly. Um, so this is this is not the first time. And, and it's worth recalling that um, when what you're Europe considers the current crisis started, that was about a year ago, and that was with the drowning of approximately 800 people in the central Mediterranean. And that was before we started seeing um, the arrivals coming to Greece via Turkey. So uh, that already existed, and that was a very different demographic from the people arriving in Greece. There were only, uh, in 2014, there were only 7% of Syrians um, coming on that route. Uh, so, you know, we need to, to keep in mind that this is a structural issue that's been around for a long time, um, and, and our structural response has been inadequate for a long time, and, and that's just becoming uh, more evident as the numbers increase. Okay. Well, Europe's political leaders have recently come to an agreement between themselves and, of course, with Turkey, which they think will actually finally address the fundamental issues uh, around the uh, migration crisis. Can you sketch out for us in, in broad terms what are the main elements of this deal they just struck? So the agreement between uh, the EU and Turkey uh, contains a number of elements. Um, with respect to the people arriving in Greece, the part that's gotten the most attention is, is the so-called one-for-one -one principle. And what that's intended to do is uh, ensure that... Uh, well, the goal is to stop irregular migration now from, from Turkey to Greece, so stop everyone trying to come on the boats. And... Um, what they expect to do is to send essentially everyone arriving from March 20th on back to Turkey. Now, where it's unclear how they're going to manage that is uh, with respect to uh, the right to, uh, that every individual has to claim asylum and to have their case individually examined. And all the assurances are that the EU will, of course, comply fully with international law and European law on this point and will ensure that everyone does get that individual examination. However, uh, the expectation is that then they 
still get returned, either because uh, they are uh, people are irregular uh, and do not have um, a case for claiming asylum, and in which case there is a, a provision um, of the EU regulations on this matter that allow a, a return to a, a safe third country. So this also depends on the designation of Turkey as a safe third country. Um, and also Syrians and others who clearly do have the right to claim asylum and are entitled to asylum under international law uh, can also be returned based on a principle that uh, of, of safe first country so that they are um, basically able to claim asylum and to get protection, adequate protection in Turkey. So on that assumption, they too can be uh, returned. And in exchange for every Syrian, only Syrian, mind you, amongst the many, many nationalities, including nationalities from other countries at war, um, who will arrive for each Syrian that's returned under this plan, uh, another Syrian will be resettled meaning uh, come directly from Turkey to Europe through legal means, uh, through the international process um, for resettlement. Uh, there are a number of flaws in this plan, not least the legal, the legal questions uh, about whether in fact this complies fully with international law, which many people have raised. Um, but, but overall, a lot of concerns about what the real outcomes will be, both in terms of respect for people's rights um, and whether those provisions will be adequate, uh, but also for what the impacts are on the over-situation of irregular migration, because so far, these kinds of plans based on interdiction, based on you know not allowing people in, uh, have, haven't worked out uh, anywhere else. So it's hard to see how it'll work out this time. But you know better than I do, so it's not just a question of people sort of crossing the Aegean Sea whatever. There is a whole business out there, and I gather that the political leaders are very keen to somehow strike a deal which would undermine the kind of business model of smugglers and human traffickers and to reduce the incentives of, of migrants and refugees to try and enter the EU through so-called irregular routes. So to that extent, has the deal been successful? Uh, well, we'll see. It's, it's, uh, there's been, again, a, quite a lot of attention on the question of asylum and, and how that will be respected. What hasn't been very clear is what steps will Turkey take exactly to sh on, on their end to you know, shut down this route, to, to stop this business. Uh, and I haven't seen much discussion of that, which I think is a bit worrisome, because clearly um, asking nicely is probably not the basis of the plan. So what is the plan? And here I think we have to be very careful about the distinction between traffickers and smugglers. Okay. Uh, and that is a distinction that's made, and we lump them together when we're talking, let's say, about uh, you know, this, this process, because let's say from the perspective of the person on the move, you're trafficked, you're smuggled, it's different, but, uh, you know, the point is you're trying to get somewhere. Trafficking um, indicates organized crime, it indicates uh, often um, abuse uh, and, and uh, abuse of the people being trafficked. I mean, trafficked is something that happens to people, and as we know, this is a big problem that doesn't have to do just with migration. People are, are, are trafficked um, in order to be exploited. Uh, Smuggling can also refer to people who facilitate onward movement of refugees also for humanitarian reasons. Okay. And there is an exception that's made even in EU law for that. And one of the things that's actually quite worrisome is the uneven application of that. So we've just recently seen a couple in Denmark being prosecuted, being fined, because they gave a ride to, uh, they used their personal car to give a ride to a family who were trying to reach Sweden. And 
and they, they transported them while they're being fined for being smugglers. Now, is that really the kind of criminal network we're trying to break down? I don't think so. So, I mean, we have to be clear about the distinction. Does there need to be a law enforcement component? Of course, trafficking is a long-standing problem, not just now, but uh, you know, we see exploitation of women and children in particular, um, women being trafficked. That's a problem that absolutely has to be dealt with. But the question is how? And the other question is, is that actually the effective answer? Because interdiction you know, doesn't seem to work, and it hasn't worked for the war on drugs either. So when you've got supply and demand, when you've got these push and pull factors, is a law enforcement response the, the best way to deal with that alone? Yeah, um, and, and maybe one component needs to be law enforcement, but is that really the correct basis for a policy? Uh, and we would argue that the way to counter the traffickers and to counter those illegal, that proliferation of, of organized crime and illegal routes is to create legal routes so that people take the legal option. Because it's very clear they're going to come one way or the other, and that's also because of demand here, and we can't forget that, and I do mean uh, gaps in the labor market, um, as well as, let's say, family reunification and other things. Um, so, you know, w m why aren't we looking more carefully at how to have legal routes, first of all, for the people who need international protection, so more resettlement uh, in the first place, um, but also uh, regular routes to encourage labor mobility, circular migration, circular labor migration, temporary employment, seasonal employment, all these different varieties to accommodate the very different um, constituencies you have trying to trying to reach Europe for different reasons. Okay. Well, the scalar problem is, is such, obviously, that you can't just solve it by throwing money at it. Nonetheless, significant amounts of funds have been allocated, I think up to 6 billion euros, to try and solve the crisis. To what extent will, will these funds, do you think, help at least uh, solve part of the problem? Right. So in, in the case of, of Turkey, uh, there is a refugee facility, uh, nice EU term for, for fund, um, to, to support Syrian refugees in Turkey. Turkey has three million refugees. Um, in, for comparison, the EU has received um, a, a million uh, irregular migrants um, in 20, over 2015. Uh, so Turkey, being obviously smaller than the EU collectively, uh, is is carrying a pretty big caseload of refugees. So uh, we've, you know, I work for Oxfam. We've been calling for a, for a long time for there to be better burden sharing um, with uh, the countries who are hosting, you know, huge numbers of refugees. In Lebanon, one out of four people now is is a Syrian refugee. I mean, that's that's just an astonishing number if you think about what that means for um, basic services and, and infrastructure in Lebanon to cope with that. So uh, more money is absolutely needed uh, because people are in just in dire conditions and they have their you know, basic needs uh, that should be met. And, and that's a, a basic obligation that Europe uh, should be fulfilling and should be showing solidarity with the countries who are bearing um, the brunt of a real crisis uh, in, in, in terms of refugees, which, frankly, I think, um, you know, really puts what we're calling a crisis in Europe in perspective. So, yes, money is absolutely part of the equation. Uh, it should be. I think, um, you know, one of the few innovative steps we've seen the EU take is actually the setup of a... Um, of a facility, of a fund to deliver humanitarian aid inside the EU, which is a novelty. Um, and that's an acknowledgement that we have a humanitarian situation now 
in European countries, um, and and they're starting to approach that as they would a humanitarian situation anywhere in the world, and and that's a positive step. But of course, those are stop 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 gaps. That's that's really important for dealing with people's immediate basic human needs, which is crucial, but of course doesn't deal with the structural issues that we need to tackle at the same time. Okay, uh, one final question, Sarah. You said at the very beginning that um, as far as being part of the collective political consciousness, the migration crisis in those terms that dates back no more than a year. To what extent now do you think the political leaders in particular realise that this is of course not a new, just not a new phenomenon on the crisis, but also not a temporary phenomenon? Have, have they finally got it and are planning long-term solutions to a very complex problem? I think at some level uh, there certainly is that realization, and I think we see the evidence of that because before the EU-Turkey meeting, uh, we had back in November the Valletta summit. So that was a summit uh, at which the EU summoned uh, selected numbers of their African partners uh, to look at um, the the what has always been a you know long-term structural migratory pressure from Africa. Um, and, uh, and that will be followed up in May uh, when they meet uh, for the Council Development Council in May. Uh, and, and that has been continuing. There are a number of actions agreed at that summit um, and a roadmap and, and all the usual things. And that, that has been constantly pursued. So the headlines are very much about Turkey and, and Syrian refugees and the situation in Greece. Uh, but definitely our policymakers are looking at this long term. On the one hand, that's positive in principle that it is, I think, clearly understood that, that this is not uh, not a new phenomenon and not going away either. I mean, um, people migrate. That's something they do. Um, I'm a migrant myself, uh, for example. So, um, so you know, that's that's something that, that is just a, a long-term feature of human existence and that um, does require a policy response. On the other hand, the nature of that policy response is concerning. So, Lots of outrage about the deal with Turkey when it comes to the you know provisions that are questionable from a human rights perspective and a legal perspective. Sadly, a lot less outrage uh, publicly about very similar deals that are being made with African countries in a situation where the EU has a lot more leverage uh, with those countries. It's not really as equal of a negotiating position as arguably Turkey had. So we're seeing what I would say amounts to coercion and bribery vis-a-vis -vis a lot of African countries um, and, and EU demands that they essentially manage migration on Europe's behalf. And that's really of concern um, whether it's a question you know, of distorting the priorities of African governments when it comes to the services and, and security they provide their own citizens. So you know, using development money um, to support primarily border, you know, not necessarily primarily, but using development funds to support border control, is that the best use of development money? But also uh, you know, seeing more cooperation with countries like Sudan. So you know, the EU, one thing that didn't make the news, particularly EU recently, uh, awarded a whole bunch more development money to Sudan. That was an agreement that the foreign minister had to come to of Sudan came to Brussels to sign. Because obviously, the uh, leader of Sudan can't do so as he is a war criminal wanted by the ICC. So, I mean, these are the people we're uh, we're deciding to cooperate with to control migration. Are we really going to be supporting the security services of a country like Sudan, given given the leadership they have? That's a really really questionable. So um, the, the, the EU's approach to uh, border control, this component of outsourcing uh, management of migration uh, to other countries is deeply questionable from a lot on a lot of fronts. And I think uh, not only 
you know, leaves Europe with very little moral authority on other matters that it, it, it claims to, to want to pursue, like respect for human rights, uh, but, but just really undermines our interests across a number of things. So, I mean, we're sacrificing a lot on the altar of, of controlling migration. Is this really our biggest threat? You know, uh, that's, it's, it's hard to believe that, um, uh, that this is the uh, approach that's going to work for us long term. Okay, we have to leave it there. Sir Tesorieri, thank you very much for your time.